helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, we have the pleasure of speaking with a highly experienced, meticulous and humble leader who has successfully transitioned from serving in the armed services to becoming an impressive CEO on debut. He has a lifelong love of learning and professional development, with a Masters of Arts at the Cranfield School of Management, MBA at the Open University, Diploma in Security Services at Deakin University, and has recently completed the Australian Institute of Company Directors course. His impressive leadership has been recognised with a Queen's Commendation in 2000 and an OBE in 2005. He served in the British Armed Forces for 20 years and the Australian Defence Force for a further 10 years before transitioning into a principal consultant role at Deloitte Australia. Since 2015, he has, helped, he has led the Deloitte team responsible for the Invictus Games Sydney pro bono effort which resulted in being appointed as the CEO of the 2018 Invictus Games Sydney. The Invictus Games is an incredibly inclusive, inspiring and game-changing event for the veterans who serve the world so proudly with purpose, integrity and passion. I'm honoured and privileged to introduce a remarkable leader who is changing many people's lives, Patrick Kidd. Patrick, welcome to the show. Wow, Craig, thank you. probably is the best introduction that I've ever had, probably the least accurate in terms of um, the type of person that I am, but uh, you know, I am, um, I am humbled actually to, to be here this afternoon. It's great to talk about um, what we've achieved over the last two to three years. Um, so looking forward to your questions and I hope that I can live up to um, what it is you've just described. Oh, it's a pleasure. You know, we're here in Pepper's Gallery Hotel in, in Canberra and you know, you've had a, a pretty exciting year. So before we delve into that, let's, let's take a step back in memory lane. Did you always grow up wanting to be a soldier when you were a child? Good question. So my father said to me uh, a long time ago, I wasn't the best student at school. And he said to me, there's only two things I could really be. One was a plumber and the other was a soldier. Um, I opted to go into the army. I'm still thinking about the plumbing career. I think that's probably was a big mistake not doing that. But um, really from quite an early stage, I've been driven by the idea of service and purpose. Uh, you know, I like to believe in things. Uh, I, th- I think it's, it brings out the best in people when you can. The, the military and the army specifically is one of the ultimate team sports. Uh, you absolutely live and die on the performance of others and how people come around a team in uncertain, difficult and dangerous environments and uh, you know, I had the absolute privilege to, to service some wonderful people. Over 30 years uh, I've seen some extraordinary things, uh, it's not always pretty um, but it's not always what you read about in the, in the books either, you know, it's, it's, it really is an amazing collection of people who come together because they're trying to make a difference for good and, uh, and I'm very proud to have been a part of that in my history, both with the British military and also the Australians. So do you think it would be you know, good for the world to have everyone serve for their country, whether it be in the armed forces or whether it be for the government or something else, before they really kick into life? I think it's a, it's a tough question. I think that you know, our young need to believe in something. I think they need to recognise that life has a purpose uh, and it's not just about them. And I suspect that all too often we don't do enough to really engender that sense of purpose and we don't open up those opportunities. And you know, you look at all the uh, people that serve in different ways within our communities. There are people who are in the military, there are people who are in the police forces, the fire services, the midwives, the nurses, the doctors, the school teachers. And I'm not necessarily convinced that we pay due credit to what it is that goes into those lives and the sacrifices that people have to make, the sacrifices their families have to make to enable people to do that type of work. And I suspect when I look at my own children, who are great, great children, um, but 
I'm not really sure that they that the education system engenders that sense of purpose and a sense of an obligation to give back when you're in a position to do so that it might do. There's they do activities. I don't necessarily think those activities. I think they're more um, superficial activities that people do rather than necessarily driving and encouraging people to do something for the love of doing something for others. I think, you know, I'm always, you know, I'm someone that is, the more you give, the more you get. And obviously your your parents must have gave you a lot as well. You know, what sort of advice or values did they instill in you when you were young that have helped you in your career? Do you know, I'd say, um, the key influences on my life were were probably less my parents, who were great parents, but you know they were traditional. They'd come out of a different time, whereby you know they'd come from some very traditional working class roots in the United Kingdom, and they'd had to fight their way up in the world to to really create a solid family background for myself and my brother. You know, I think the core influences on me were the people that I met through my education sort of process, through the um, through the friends that I had. And for me, a pivotal time was very much when I went to university in, in the United Kingdom and I first became um, involved with the military in a, uh, in a part-time basis. But there I, I definitely found my way to a collection of people that I was uh, very comfortable to be around, who I could identify with. And uh, I think it was that community that really kick-started this idea of the fact that there was, there was more to life than just the commercial side, there's, there are other ways of making a living. And I'm, yeah, so I have, I have few regrets, if any. Yeah. So you had a very long career in the armed services. Can you tell us about the roles that you had, especially around the, the leadership aspects? So I joined as a, a young officer when I was 22. Uh, funnily enough, actually, I never thought that I'd spend 30 years in the military. My intention was only ever to do two or three years and then leave and do something else. Um, but I found it clearly too hard to leave. Yep. Um, uh, but the military is a great organisation for, I think particularly for people who don't know what they're gonna do. You know, it helps to give them shape and to create challenges that you can focus your attention on. And uh, you know, from the very start, when you go to your officer training, in my case, uh, I you know relish that sort of moment in time and that opportunity. And, and from really from that moment on, you know, when I started with the organisations that I work with, um, every role that I had was always a leadership role. You know, some of the some of the um, some of my moments of leadership were good and some were less good, um, but you learn, you learn with other people. Uh, the system is incredible in terms of mentoring you and giving you the, the rope to, to sort of, to play with, to sort of really sort of test yourself and prove yourself. But um, certainly as I moved through it, you know, I was very comfortable with working with great teams and uh, it's always the teams that do the work and your job really is to try and bring a team together to give the team purpose and to and to help them along the way so that they can do great work. So it was, it just happens through osmosis really. So it was a real, a real, you know, a, lots of fun and, and good serious work as well. Yeah, so obviously talking about that team, how would your team, uh, team members describe your leadership style? <laughs> um, different people would do it differently and I think a lot of it is driven by the context of what you're doing so um, you know there's sometimes in the military when uh, you need to be very directive and very um, robust in your leadership because it's hard and and you need to make sure that people respond to that there are other times when you need a softer style because actually it's not like that and you can only ever get people you can only ever get the best from people as if you empower them to do that work uh, I think that as a general rule, people would describe me as being very passionate, a great believer. Uh, you know, I, I, I drive people through purpose. Uh, I like to think that I empower people. Um, but by the same token, when you empower somebody, it doesn't necessarily mean that you, that you ignore what they do or you don't take an interest in what they do. I think the challenge as a, as a leader is always about striking the right balance between giving them boundaries that give them freedoms to operate within, but then making sure that they're doing what it is you hope that they would do, so that they're not 
and you're not disappointed by the outcomes and to support them when those times are there. I think sometimes in the workplace people try to take on too much and they struggle and all of a sudden they put up their hand too late and then it's too hard to help them to, to recover a situation. So I think the relationship between a leader and the team is they've got to know what's going on. They've got to be transparent enough in that relationship to be able to say I've got a challenge that I can't quite deal with and then you seek advice and that's when the bigger team can come in around that person, that moment, that, that thing that you're trying to do to make sure it doesn't fall over. And creating that right atmosphere is, is, is I think, one of the fundamental jobs of, of, of a leader in this modern environment. It's about enabling people to do the best that they can, to be the best that they can be, to do the best that they can possibly do, uh, to, um, to, to generate great outcomes. Yeah. And, and you, know, you, you touched on there around that, both that team approach from leadership as well as the individual. I mean, obviously on TV, when we see the movies, a lot of it's a directive at the team. Uh, but you, you're, you know, you're talking a lot there around you know, making sure that the individual, you can bring the best out of the individual to help the whole team as a sum. Yeah, people don't do, uh, different organisations are different and, and every organisation has got to have a slightly different leadership style that's appropriate to the context yep. of what's occurring. Uh, but I think that by the same token, uh, what you've got to do is to look at what you've got. You look at the strengths and weaknesses of the people that you have and you need to build on strengths and you need to create an environment in which people feel empowered to do the best that they can possibly do. The worst place to be, I think, is when you are in a position whereby you are trying to tell somebody what to do and you're giving them a checklist as to what they need to do to deliver that outcome. That will work once or twice, but when it gets really tough and when the circumstances start to change and you're not there to understand the nature of the change, the checklist doesn't work anymore. So then you need to have somebody who understands what it is you're trying to achieve, is bought into the vision of what you're trying to achieve and then they'll do it. They won't necessarily do it how you hoped or thought they were going to do it, but they're still going to do it and they're going to do a great job. You just need to create the space for them to, to, to do what they need to do. Yeah. And, and so that empowerment's obviously really important. Um, in some of the situations that the armed forces would be in, there's a lot happening and it's not how it's planned. So you might have a strategy, but things change and evolve very, very quickly. So, but you've also got to have the team working as unison as well. So that must be a real challenge because you've got to give them ownership to be to make decisions and lead in certain mm. situations but at the same time if they move too far away from the team's plan or, or the team approach it could it could be fatal it, it, so there's a there's a famous general can't remember what his name is but he would talk about the fact that the um, the act of the plan means nothing, so the plan that you deliver means nothing because it will never be what it is you hoped it was going to be when you created the plan. The act of planning is everything. And so it's about creating the conversations, the relationships, the, the networks, the understanding about what it is you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. And then enabling a collection of individuals to understand how they're going to respond to have confidence in each other, to have trust, so that when the situation does become a mess, which these things always do, they know what they're going to do in response to that. And so often, I think, it almost doesn't matter what you do, so long as you do something. Mm. And then you stop and you check and you assess and you just ask yourself the question whether or not it's taking you in the direction that you wish to go which I suppose gets to the other part of your question, which is you know, unless you've got a really clear view as to what the objective is and what you're trying to do, you're never going to get there. So I think that clarity of about you know, what's the strategy, what's the plan, what are you trying to achieve, and then creating the networks and the relationships to enable people to, to do what they need to do is generally will get you, I think, good results. So, so you're in highly stressful situations. Is, can you tell us about a time where you may have made a mistake leading a team in the armed services and how did you, you know, what sort of strategies did you employ to resurrect that situation? So I think there's, um, it's, a, it's a great question and you did pre-warn me for that. Um, I'm not sure my answer will do it justice. You know, I think I'd, I'd, I'd say a couple of things, you know, a, 
you know, firstly, I think there is a, as a leader, you can be tremendously arrogant. And there's a danger of arrogance, you know, which is that all of a sudden you start to believe that what you think is right, as opposed to the fact that actually, more often than not, as soon as you start to think like that, then something's going to come and get you that you weren't expecting. And so I think you've always got to respect the world in which you live and respect the people that you're dealing with, stakeholders, no matter, you know, this, if in a military environment, a stakeholder might be the enemy or it might be the people that you have to operate with, but it's a complex beast involving people. And so you must always respect people because people don't always behave how you hope they might. Uh, often will surprise you, sometimes will disappoint you, but you need to always recognise that you exist within that ecosystem and therefore you have a place within it and you've got to respect that. And so the mistakes I've made have often been around a moment of hubris when I haven't, when I've all of, a, all of a sudden started to think that I'm right and I'm not treating the situation with respect. And you have to all the time, I think, question what you're doing and why you're doing it and how you're doing it. And you need to, I think, find a way of creating tension within an organisation that tests you and tests your thinking and tests the thinking of the people that you have working for you because it's only through the creation of those ideas that come from different people having different views of the same problem do you start to get, I think, a little bit of clarity about what it is you need to do to navigate your way through what can be quite complex situations. The, the specific story I would tell in terms of a mistake that I often think about is one whereby I, I failed to back one of my people once. So I was in, um, I was in Iraq, I had a fantastic individual who, um, who worked for me as my deputy and um, in the, um, the process, the bureaucratic process of, 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 of people and how you select people for different things at different times, I made the mistake of not properly situating that individual within the politics of a bureaucracy. And so I said what I thought, I didn't say what I should have done to support that person. Mm. And as a consequence, that person didn't, not because I necessarily didn't want it to be the case, but he didn't progress in the way that he deserved to progress. Because I tr played it as I saw it in a slightly, actually in a dumb way rather than necessarily understanding the context of where I was at and recognising that sometimes you've just got to do what you've got to do to get somebody through, irrespective of how things, what the written word looks like. You've got to play the politics if you're yep. going to look after your people. And so the, the, the lesson I took from that is this idea about when you have your people and you're in an organisation, particularly a structured one in which you know people have to move through it and they've got to be successful and to do that they've got to advance. A fundamental job of a leader in that case is to identify the people that they're going to look after them, to look after and then make sure they look after them. And that requires you to do things in a slightly different way sometimes to make sure you don't let that person down. So you've always got to have, everyone's got to have everyone's back in a way and be able to support them and you know as you say they're not always going to be in the A game they're, they're going to make mistakes or they're not going to quite take the opportunities they should they may not be as decisive as they could be but it's you know how can we help each other to move forward right and it's the big game isn't it it's not about who you are now or what you did yesterday it's what you're going to be yep. and I think a leader and certainly in big organisations has got to recognise that you know, his fundamental role and responsibility is to grow the next, the next CEO, the next CFO, the next coup um, at the end of the day because if that person doesn't pull them through then, um, uh, then nobody will. And so I think sometimes you've got to hold faith with the people that you select and make sure you hold faith with them. So you had a life of 30 years in the armed services and it's, it's a very special community and environment and, and way of doing things and, and the whole purpose behind it. What were the biggest challenges you faced when you transitioned from the armed services into your role at 
Deloitte Australia, you know, what we might say as more of a corporate world? So a couple of points, I suppose. I mean, I alluded earlier to the fact that I only ever joined thinking I'd last for three years. Um, and then I'd leave and go and do something else. And so I literally, I'd spent 27 years thinking it's time I left now. Um, but I kept on staying on and staying on and staying on and loving the work that I did. Um, but I found it strange when I left um, that I found the experience of leaving as confronting as it was. Uh, not in a bad way, but there is a fundamental difference between serving in your nation's defence force and operating in commercial Australia. And that difference, I think, comes down to team and the fact that the team isn't there in the way that it would have been there before. And I think people who leave the military struggle with the loss of team um, when they first come out. They've got to find their way to like-minded people, to doing things that they value. And I think perhaps the biggest thing is this idea of purpose. You know, it's about what was it that made you good when you were in the military and how do you pick that up and translate that into into a commercial environment and I think I struggled very much, not very much, I struggled when I left uh, to find my way to purpose and to doing the things that I valued and thought were important and that resonated with my value set. Um, but I got there eventually but it was a much more difficult process than I thought it would be. And I always think when I talk about something like this, you know, I think of the, in the Defence Force, there are 5,000 um, individuals who leave the Defence Force in any year. Um, there'll be a difference of rank levels. A lot of the veterans that I know that struggle are those who struggle to transition into employment. Um, and stability, mental stability, health and well-being is a factor, you know, it represents the combination of a number of different variables. You know, one is about your health, your physical health, another is about whether or not you've got a job that you believe in, the other is about your your family and the support of your family, and the other might be about your sense of purpose and, and what it is you're doing in your life. And I think if you start to unravel those things and all of a sudden it becomes a very challenging space for people to control and then things start to fall apart. And I think some of the challenges that in the veteran world is is that failure to be able to transition properly, to find a way to work that they can value in a way that resonates with their value set, so they, 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 they then really struggle. Um, so I've been immensely lucky, Deloitte were incredibly supportive, the Invictus Games actually through Deloitte was something that very much helped me to fill that void. You know, and I think we see that a lot with athletes too, yeah. athletes have that, that same issue as they yeah. come out and I suppose for them, they know where they stand in the pecking order as well. They know whether they've won or lost. When yeah. you go into the corporate world, it's it's hard to define sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe the role you have with mm -hmm. the Invictus Games, I think you would know if you've actually won yeah. because you can feel the success, feel the emotion, and, and see the resulting legacy of that, which will go on a little bit um, more in detail later on. So I believe former Australian rugby captain uh, Stephen Moore was potentially the catalyst to Australia commencing its bid for the Sydney Invictus Games 2018. Can you please share a bit of backstory behind this? For so that was uh, 2014. Um, I was out in Afghanistan, still serving in the army at that point in time, working with the Americans. But um, Stephen and a, uh, he was, he'd broken his, busted his knee. Uh, he was on sabbatical. He was doing a program with Deloitte at the time. Uh, so he's with a guy called Ben Rahili, who's been my great mate working on this now for sort of many years. Uh, they go up to Darwin, they participate in a game of wheelchair rugby with a collection of individuals who'd been wounded out in Afghanistan. And at the same time of that, uh, they, uh, the London Games are taking place for the first time uh, back in the UK. And really from that experience, the recognition of the fact the Invictus movement was beginning, uh, they thought, wouldn't it be an interesting idea if we could do something like this in Australia? Uh, the real power then was the fact that they brought that back into Deloitte and Deloitte then chose to decide to back it as an idea on a pro bono basis. And at that point in time, they put time and resources to one side to help um, do the work, you know, a lot of work to try and win the business case to bring the games over here. So the rest then followed from that. 
So it must have been a pretty uplifting experience for those who worked at Deloitte to go, hey, you know what? It's We have a greater purpose than what we do in our day-to-day jobs. We've now got this Invictus Games. It is something that we can all buy into, something we can feel proud of, something we can be involved in. And did, did you notice the change? Or oh, yeah, no, so it, was an, it was an incredible uh, experience. I mean, I when I first joined uh, Deloitte, it was given to me then as a sort of a resourced piece of paper with nothing more than just Invictus Games Australia question mark and so then it was about breathing life into it but everybody who's been involved in the project has taken something from it probably across Deloitte we've had a hundred people um, who've been involved with it to greater or lesser degree for those of us who've been privileged enough to to be in the core team it really has been a life-changing experience we've built a business we've had trials and tribulations in doing that so we've all learnt a lot from that you know resilience has been absolutely the watchword here you know you wouldn't get anywhere unless you believe that this was good and right to do and we've been able to build a business grow a staff deliver a games close the games down and you will know, absolutely without any shadow of a doubt we're very proud of what we've all achieved it, it's a it's a platform to you know raise awareness around the role which sport and exercise play in our health and well-being and to also celebrate the unconquered spirit of those that serve and the families who support them. Can you explain why this is so important to those that have served and the families that have supported them? So I think we all talk a lot about the power of being active and the power of being physically healthy. Um, But what we don't do is necessarily live it. And we don't necessarily sort of see the the complex relationship that exists between the person who's becoming involved in sport and the support network that plays around it. Uh, I am continuously surprised and blown away by the individual stories of individuals whose lives have been changed through their association with these games, either directly as a result of the games, or because they were a volunteer at the games, or because they were involved in training and preparing for the games. But the, the very act of becoming active again, and the fact that with that you then bring with you a support network that is seeing the benefits of you becoming active means that the benefits, you know, health, the physical health benefits, the mental health benefits are absolutely paramount and tangible. And you know, the numbers of people that you'll speak to who will describe how these games, that activity has saved their lives is extraordinary. And so it really is about this celebration of people who have chosen not to be defined by the injuries that they have got, the challenges that they face. They've chosen to do something about it, they've got active, and by being active they then connect with other people. And it's about their spirit. It doesn't matter if they come first, second or third, but it's the fact that they themselves have transformed their lives and only they do it with the support of their networks. And, and that's the real power of these games. And the inspiration of it is to see this thing being played out in front of your eyes. And for those of you who didn't witness the games, either on the television or, or live, you know they are incredible images, incredible stories of people's lives who've been changed in different ways by just getting involved with something that's bigger than themselves. And, and there's a massive lesson in there for us all, I think, in terms of how you can look after your health and your well-being. You know, it, it's it's very special. It's not about selecting the best athletes. It's not about selecting those that are going to win medals. It's about selecting those that will get the most out of the experience. Am I correct? Yeah, it's about the journey. And each nation treats it slightly differently. The medals are important. They're really important to the people who take part. Um, but it's it's really about those individuals who are going to get the most from that experience. There are so many other programs out there as well that are being run um, for veterans specifically, but across our communities, which encourage people to be active and be connected. And yet, we don't really talk about them very much. But you know, the benefits of people just being involved with things bigger than themselves are equally applicable to the young in our schools, the old, the older who are in old age care facilities. You know, it's it's it's, it's equally powerful if you can get people involved with doing things and. More people playing ping pong and more people doing bowls, better it all is. And so were there any like standout 
memories or specific moments from that Invictus Games where you're just like, wow, that that is just something really, really special that has changed someone's life or changed people's Do you know, there's like, a, there's like a million stories. Um, you can wander around the games and you'll come across a volunteer who's in tears because she's all of a sudden seeing something that she never thought she'd see. Uh, and she's now determined to change her life as a result. There are individual stories of um, competitors who have a moment in time during the games themselves and yet what they do is they focus upon themselves and they focus upon the the joy of participation rather than the joy of winning to help each other through those moments in time. I've, I've had the privilege again of being to two previous Invictus games for short periods of time. Um, I was overwhelmed by the, the sense of positiveness that was there up at Sydney Olympic Park. I mean, every single person was aligned about the purpose. Everybody was having a great time. It was a massive celebration about what it is people can do when they choose that they wish to do it. Um, there was a, a, a girl who came down with MS from um, Brisbane. Uh, her name was Mia, and uh, she has had a really, really tough, tough life in terms of you know, her illness and the progression of her illness. She was inspired by those games and she's now, having not been able to do anything with her hands for a long time, she's now picked up a basketball and she's now moving a basketball around her hands. You know, she's now moving forwards, not backwards, because of the experience that she had and the people that she met. So there are literally no end of, of stories. Uh, they are very, very powerful and it's all about the power that people have to do things and what they can achieve if they just decide that that's what they're going to do and get on with it. Extremely humbling and an extremely enjoyable experience for yourself to go through that. Uh, the The inspiration behind it was Prince Harry. Um, you know, he saw the Wyndham Warriors yep. games in, in the US and obviously having his beautiful wife Megan who are just an amazingly engaging people they get down to people's level it's not as though I'm all high and mighty mm. I'm a royal it is I'm here I'm passionate and you could really sense I wasn't there personally but watching on TV you could feel the connectedness between Harry obviously and his background in the military you know what how much did that really change the way the event flowed like how big of I suppose Influence did they have on the on the whole experience? So they um, they I think in a couple of levels, you know. So Prince Harry is a um, is a fantastic talisman, you know, for the brand for the games. And so we are, you know, I look at other not for profits in Australia, and I thought, how privileged are we? How lucky are we? The fact that we have that type of individual with with his very personal level of engagement with these games, you know, that's a great thing to be able to to work with when you're trying to something like this together. Um, it was interesting these games because obviously he, for the first time, he wasn't dedicated to them. He came at the start, he then came at the end, but in the middle he, he went away. Um, and we were concerned about that initially. We thought maybe that would then lead to a you know, lack of excitement, a lack of interest by the competitors. You know, the games is all about him, not about, not about what it should be about, which yep. is about the competitors and their families. But uh, actually, you know, it worked incredibly well. You know, he brings with him excitement and interest, but he also brings with him incredible focus. So he would always be, if he was to sit here now, having this conversation with you, the first thing he would say is that these games are all about the competitors and they're all about the family and friends. It's not about me, it's about them. And so he's very good at keeping you focused on the things that really matter. And that's the advice that we always followed is about focusing upon that core community that we really care about. Um, and so we found with the games itself that actually they, they stood on their own. Um, and the atmosphere that was created was created by those competitors, those families and friends, the spectators that came to watch it, who got in behind it and who made the thing real. And when Prince Harry came at the end, uh, you know, he saw something that I think he would have been incredibly proud of. You know, I know he's very proud of. You know, for him, what we've helped to do is to move forward the Invictus legacy. Mm -hmm. So that there were great games in London, smaller. There were great games in Orlando, 
America is different to Australia. There were great games in Toronto, but we took them to another level here in Australia. We gave them the great Australian games, mm. whereby the uh, population of Australia got in behind them, rejoiced in it, got excited by it. And, um, and with that comes many benefits in terms of greater awareness about the community of people that we are, uh, the challenges that they face, but also the great qualities of those individuals um, who are people with spirit to be celebrated. So what's next then? The, the legacy of Invictus Games Sydney, what is going to get rolled out now to ensure that those people that for, for one week were there, their, their emotions were high, they were, they were achieving amazing things, they were inspiring other people. It's a big high. Yep. Obviously there's a big low that potentially follows after that. What, what's happening to support them and what can, the, say, the business community or the sporting community, how can they help? to ensure that these people are supported long term. So you describe it beautifully, you know, it really is that precipice, isn't it? You go and have that amazing moment in time for seven days and then it's stopped. <laughs> and you have a rest for a couple of days, like, what next? And, and I think that's a real challenge with this community. You know, they need to be, they need clear goals, they need to be driven, they need to drive themselves towards something. And so that's really important. And we've always recognised that in terms of what the legacy of these games needs to be. So. What's been created is an organisation, it's called Veterans Sports Australia, and its role is to bring together the community of people who've served and to then create a coherent programme. So if somebody just wants to play sport as a part of a community, active and connected, then they can go and do that. It might be golf, it might be sailing, it might be rugby, basketball, it doesn't really matter, but if they're perfectly fit and able, it should be about giving them pathways that allow them to connect with each other. Then there's another part of that that would be focused upon those people who need, um, who want to do adaptive sports, which is for those who are recovering from illness in, in some form or another. And there's another separate pathway there. So what we're trying to do is to, is to create the community firstly of people who want to be a part of it, and then to put them into the pathways to connect them up to the opportunities that are out there, of which there are many, almost too many, uh, so that the landscape becomes easier to navigate and that a person knows that if he wants or she wants to be supported that there's somewhere that she can go to be supported to help them on their journey. So that's what we're trying to do. There's a lot of work that has to be done to breathe life into that and um, we had a great moment with the games. The attention then goes off it and now we've got to make sure that we pick ourselves up and then maintain the momentum. Um, and so that'll be the focus over the next, uh, the next couple of months. The way, for me, you know, the most powerful thing from the games in terms of you know, why, why were the games successful? They were successful because we were able to bring together government, corporate Australia and the not-for-profit sector around a common purpose. And the common purpose was the games, and the games is easy to sell. But we've created a family, we've created a common understanding. Our obligation now is to make sure that that understanding that family is not lost as we go forward so that um, so that we continue to do the work that needs to be done to support these people through these activities and this isn't just about veterans you know this is about our community as a whole it's about empowering and energizing sport more generally to to take sport back to its roots which really is about communities and enabling communities through sport shouldn't matter about the elite sports it's really about getting people involved, getting the young involved, getting the old involved, but getting people active and getting them connected. So what are some of the rituals or habits that you employ to ensure that you are both mentally and physically healthy every single day? <laughs> or are you just focused about giving to everyone else right now? You know, I have absolutely no rituals. Somebody asked me this question not long ago, they said, what's the... What's the one thing you do every day? I said, I do absolutely nothing, nothing the same every day. So it's a great uh, way to live. I get up and do, do what I want. I'm driven by, um, driven by sort of what I believe in, you know, driven by my family, the support of my family and, uh, and those things. But um, I, I, you know, for me, I'm focused on outcomes. Um, so I'm always thinking about what is the next outcome? You know, yeah. I, I, I think, there's a mistake that sometimes we all make, which is to sort of overanalyze problems and overanalyze situations when actually sometimes all you need to do is just do something. And when you do something, things become clearer. You won't always get it right, but at least you're moving in a direction. It's very, you, you have to generate momentum. You've got to generate 
a sense of the fact that you're all on a sort of a train going somewhere. You might not know where you're going, but it's good to be sort of going somewhere. Um, so I think that's probably what I do, which probably drives my people mad. <laughs> but uh, but that is definitely how I how I think about things. You know, unless you've got those outcomes clear in your head, then I, I think it's very hard to move forward. So we all know smart people have great answers, but the best people have great questions. So when was the last time you did something for the first time? When was the last time I did something for the first time? Wow. The last time I did something for the first time was probably when I learned to ask for help. And so uh, it would have been around the games. We were short of money. We were being clever about how we were trying to raise money. And I ended up getting on the phone and speaking to people that I trusted and just saying, I need a bit of help. And I was flabbergasted by how willing people were to either say no, but with great charm and dignity, or also just to say, yep, no problem. And so I think what I learned is we don't always ask for things clearly. Mm. And sometimes you just need to ask for things clearly and you'd be surprised by the result. It's a great answer. And uh, not what I was expecting, but I'm impressed with that one. So when, when you're dealing with stress, when something happens, when you hit a brick wall, how do, you, how do you switch off from that and be present when you move into another setting where you may go home to your family? That's really hard, isn't it? I mean, that's, um, I, I can give you the stock answers. I go for a run, I do exercise um, and all that stuff. I do all of those things. Uh, I take the dog for a walk, dog takes me for a walk. Um, but I think one of the things I've found really hard over the last couple of years with this all-consuming project um, has been that. Uh, and if I was to be honest with you, I, I don't think I've done it very well. Uh, you know, it has taken over my life. Uh, it has taken over um, you know, within the family. It's, 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 been, a, it's been a big thing. Um, and so I don't think it's been healthy. Um, as far as that's concerned, my wife was amazing. You know, she, rather than me sort of come to her, so to speak, she came to me. So she ended up volunteering to sort of understand my world a bit better. And that was really good, actually. That was very powerful in terms of just all of a sudden you're now talking about the same thing and you can, it brings you back together again. But, but I think it's an incredibly hard thing to do. I, I think as a CEO or anybody who, who, who leads an organization or an endeavor or a purpose, you know, you, you have to care a lot. You have to be passionate about what you're doing and that requires you to care. And so I think the hard thing is managing that level of care with the other things that you need to care about. Um, and it's, um, I think that's a really difficult thing to do. I think different organisations probably have different pressures. You know, ours was one of a schedule and so therefore you couldn't afford to push anything off until next year. It had to be done this time around. So that was all consuming. But I imagine that every CEO out there can give you a bunch of answers, but I reckon they spend a lot of time thinking and caring about their business and their people. For sure. And so last question, who has made the greatest impact on your career and why? So I suppose I'd like to say Winston Churchill, who's always entertaining, but you know, it comes back to my wife, I suspect. Um, I could not have done anything without her support, without the sacrifices that she's made uh, to look after my family, which has enabled me to spend seven years overseas deployed with the military in either the UK or the Australian armies, uh, to spend countless nights away from home doing projects like this. You know, you really are lost without um, somebody who is prepared to subordinate um, in some respects, their career aspirations, you know, their own interests to look after the family as families need to be looked after and cherished. 
uh, to help you do what it is you've got to do. And uh, you know, I'm always amazed at at the sacrifices that my family has made. So I think without them, I would have achieved not very much at all. Well, it's been a, a pleasure to speak with you today, Patrick. You've you've talked about your time in the in the armed forces and how you've coped with different strategies, how you've led teams and and people in different environments and how you've had to change that depending on the context you've evolved into giving so much to so many people and the invictus games i can see the the emotion when you're talking and how much that's transformed probably your life as well as many people around you and so i'm looking i'm really excited to see what your next step is and i'm sure you're still Got a lot of work to do to complete the Invictus Games and set up the legacy, but once you've done that, it'd be really interesting to see and fascinated where you go next. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been a, a wonderful um, discussion and insight into your life. Craig, thank you very much indeed. Hard questions. You didn't give me any warning about some of those tough ones, but thank you. It's been a real pleasure, and thank you for doing it in such a beautiful way. You're welcome. Thanks. Today's Active CEO wellness tip is about apologising to me. And I really want to start to talk about how comfortable are you as a person to actually say, you know what, I'm sorry, that didn't work out the way I planned. It's about you know, controlling your ego, right? It's about taking a step back, you know, or as we make a decision and you know, we put up a big front and you kind of feel a bit conscious about saying sorry, but it is so, so important, um, you know, even as a leader, you know, you, people- More important as a leader. Oh, exactly. Yeah. You know, the humility to, to say, you know what, I made a mistake, wrong, how can we work yep. from this and make sure that we have a better... It's all that um, picture of emotional intelligence really is what it is and, a, and to me a growth mindset too. You've got to be able to, to admit that things might not have worked out the way that you had envisaged and you were willing to learn and grow. Yeah, it doesn't always mean you're wrong as well. So sometimes you've got to say sorry and it's just... It may just help calm the relationship and help things move forward. Um, you know, many people get stuck in their ways or in their ideas and they can't get outside of that. So sometimes you just need to alleviate that by, look, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And you, you know, we might need to say, okay, how do we work around this? How can we make things more, uh, the environment more effective for you or more open so that you can be the best version of yourself in this environment? And I know we've spoken about emotional intelligence, but it's really... Um you know, humility and being humble are really fantastic traits to have, not only as a person, but as a leader. And I think it's a real strength that you can um, show that. Well, it improves the relationships and it, it naturally draws people to you. You know, that ability to see, hey, you know what, they are just another person. Mm. You know, they aren't God or, you know, we put people on a pedestal, but they are just you. been an exceptional episode of the Active CEO podcast with the CEO of Invictus Games, Patrick Kick OBE. You know, he talked about life growing up when his dad gave him the option of either being a plumber or a soldier and obviously he chose to serve and have a purpose in life. He talked a lot about the young recognizing that life has to have a purpose and it's not just about them. He talked about his leadership style and the importance of when you're a leader it is your job to bring a team together give the team purpose and to help them along the way so they can do great work. He, he spoke about the importance of leadership also being driven by the context of what you're actually doing rather than choosing a leadership style and implementing it wherever you are. He talked about creating the atmosphere when things go wrong, the team will come around and support them and that the act of planning is everything when it comes to uh, developing strategies and moving forward. Um, he, Uh, One of the interesting quotes I really enjoyed was that so often it doesn't matter what you do as long as you do something and it's all about moving somewhere and getting going because if you're stuck, nothing's happening and you don't know whether you're right or wrong. He described a moment where he made a mistake in not um, backing his deputy while in Iraq and allowing the bureaucratic process of how people selected people differently and, and that even though he thought what he was saying was right, he realized that he wasn't backing his team but didn't allow him to progress long term. He struggled when he left the military and joined the corporate world and it was, it was mostly about trying to find his, his, his way with purpose, doing things that he valued 
and thought were important and resonated to his value set. The Invictus Games really gave him a greater purpose and also to the staff of Deloitte Australia. You know, resilience was just such a, a common theme throughout this um, interview, especially when we're talking about Invictus Games. And it's, it's all about the power of being active and the power of being physically healthy. And, and we don't always necessarily do it. So the Invictus Games has been a great catalyst to that. It's been about a celebration of people who have chosen not to be defined by the injuries they've got, but the challenges they've faced. We saw incredible images, incredible stories of people's lives that have been changed in different ways by just getting involved in something bigger than themselves. And, and the effects that that had on both volunteers and competitors. He talked about the influence of Prince Harry, who who started the games, and is a is a fantastic talisman about you know what's next and and also the legacy of the games. He talked about the of having the need for having clear goals and for the veterans to ensure that they can be driven and need to drive themselves towards something. The legacy of the Invictus Games has been developed among the Veteran Sports Australia which is ensuring that there are partnerships and that there are pathways and opportunities for people to either go into mainstream sporting communities or if they're not quite ready for that into um, you know, different adapted sport opportunities. He, he, he was really excited about the success of bringing together the government, corporate Australia and the not-for-profit sector around a common purpose. And you know, I think one of the really nice things at the end was that he talked about his wife having the greatest impact on his career. I think that support network of your family and having them around you and allowing you to go forward is such a massive sacrifice, but is also so, so important. It is a real challenge to have both partners uh, in a family having that ability to be driven by their goals and driving forward. It can work, but a lot of the time there's always either a husband or a wife who play that support role and it is so important to have that opportunity for um, the person in the CEO leadership role to come back home and everything be in order and everything be relaxed and uh, be able to you know, continue living that dream. Um, so yeah, another great episode. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's N-R-G number two perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.